1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Alizar Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Amal Bishara, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Tufts University. We will be talking about her book, Crossing a Line. Laws, Violence, and Roadblocks to Palestinian Political Expression, published by Stanford University Press in 2022. Thank you very much, Amal, for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, a It's an honor to be in conversation with you.
1: Oh, of course, the honor is all mine. And I have to say, it's really a special pleasure to have you here. Um, I've been really looking forward to this book, and I've been a follower of your work for a while. And it made so much sense to me that your personal, political and intellectual investments led you to Palestinian political expression in this book. But to start off, could you tell us about how you came to focusing on the fragmentations and convergence? around Palestinian political expression and maybe Iwan, why now or why at this point in your career?
0: Well, it's amazing that you start by saying, um, you know, personal, political and intellectual because really, truly this book comes from all of those places. Um, I started my field work for my first book, my first major field book as, a, sorry, my first major field work as an anthropologist in 2003. Um, and really you could say that this book um, you know, had its seeds way back then. Um, I, my fieldwork was primarily located in Jerusalem and Ramallah, but I was frequently visiting my family in the Galilee, in the far north of Israel's 1948 territories. Um, and as I would travel between uh, the far north and the Galilee and um, Ramallah, I just found each time that my senses sort of had to be retuned each time. Um, and, uh, you know, the ways people spoke were a little bit different. Um People felt distant from each other um, because, you know, they're living their everyday lives in quite different spaces and with different assumptions about the horizons of the political Um, and also different horizons about, you know, different senses of the horizons of the everyday as well. So that really got me curious about, you know, political expression in these two locations. Um, And also, you know, speaking of, you know, movements and mobilities about really how we shape our own, you know, political horizons through those everyday movements. Um, So that's the personal level. I have family in the far north, Um, of Palestine and um, my field work and also new kinship relations in the West Bank. So always moving back and forth between those two spaces. Um, And then a political sensibility really that um, for Palestinians, if they are going to move towards liberation, you know, we need to be thinking in ways that bring Palestinians together across the many lines of fragmentation. You know, Palestinians live with many different geopolitical statuses, Palestinian citizens of Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank, those in Gaza, Palestinians with a Jerusalem residency, and of course refugees who live with different statuses, whether they're in the occupied territories or in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, um, or places beyond, um, and you know, making sure that Palestinians stay in touch with each other, stay in conversation with each other, have an understanding of the everyday challenges that they face in these different locations, is a major like logistical and political challenge. You know, an ethnographer, I don't think. Uh, could capture really all of those spaces. So me, with my particular biographical connections and abilities, um, looking at two sides of the green line was one way to think about Palestinian fragmentation, um, Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in the occupied territories in the West Bank, how they live um, and how they find ways of you know resisting Israeli oppression
1: yeah thanks for sharing that and you know just to orient our uh listeners who might not be familiar. you know, I think it was very important that you open the book by discussing practices of naming Palestine and its relationship to sovereignty uh, and you do so through news infrastructures, digital worlds, and even branding, so you look at all these different sites to understand that relationship um so can you? tell us about why look at these avenues what do these different platforms tell
0: us about palestine as a political project and what it seeks to index so you know i think any national project um and any state building project you know there'll be internal contestations over what the significance of this project is and who it will serve um so for me as an ethnographer and as a palestinian it's very important for me not only to attend to um you know how israel Differently differently ostracizes and endangers Palestinians in these two locations inside Israel and in the West Bank, but also to Palestinian contestations over who is going to, you know, build the future for Palestinians. What Palestine will mean, you know. So Palestine, you know, it can be a brand for Palestinians, right? It can be a a branding mechanism, you know, to bring SUVs onto um, Palestinian roads, right? Or it can be a revolutionary statement, Um, and and that is a you know, a matter of ongoing contestation. And so I wanted to look across these different ways in which the place name Palestine is used to explore those contestations. And I'll just say, you know, even the very geography of what Palestine is, is, of course, contested. One of the things that was very disorienting for me as, again, a person who's lived my entire life visiting the northern Galilee, where, you know, on our veranda, we can see, you know, Lebanon, you know, (laughs) Uh, and and it's a very Palestinian place. So for me, then, when I was spending time in, in Bethlehem, which is in sort of, you know, just south of, of Jerusalem and just the southern part of the West Bank people would talk about the north and they would mean Nablus and not Nazareth you know they would mean the north of the West Bank and it was very disorienting for me because I thought what about the whole rest of the country right you know um, so you know both from the meanings of sort of whether Palestine is used in these neoliberal projects or whether it's used uh, towards projects of liberation and in the very you know basic geographical sense of what we mean when we think about Palestine um, it was a really fertile space for me to explore Mm
1: -hmm, absolutely and i love how you bring in you know the fact that the name doesn't just mean um or signify a geographical scope but the contestations around the future as well right political contestations um yeah that's i i find that so thought-provoking um yeah and No, one takeaway from the book for me was that political expression takes shape in myriad ways. But even forms of political expression that come to mind immediately, like protest, become very differentiated along the green line. So how are collectives forged in a landscape of protest fractured by Israeli violence?
0: Yes, so I had the... Very good fortune as an ethnographer um, to be doing field work in 2014 um, for a good number of months. And um, this was a very, very difficult time um, as Israel waged a war on Gaza that summer, um, a very ferocious war. And in response, Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians in the West Bank um gathered in solidarity protests. Um, As I was doing field work across the Green Line, I watched how Palestinians protested in these two different locations um, using somewhat different tactics. Inside Israel, Palestinians would be, you know, gathering in the streets, carrying Palestinian flags, um, and the chants would go on for minutes at a time, and they were evoking these histories of Palestinian protest and poetry in these ways that were extraordinarily moving, Um, And then I would return to the West Bank and it was Ramadan. Um, And so oftentimes the protests were actually happening after the iftar. So nighttime protests. And the protests were really oriented around, you know, we are going to open up a new front of confrontation with the Israeli army with the sense that this is like, you know, Complicating the Israeli military mission as well as making a collective statement against Israel's war on Gaza. So, uh, you know, stone throwing, um, people gathering in the streets. Um, And the interesting thing for me was that if Palestinians there had been using lots of slogans, really nobody would have heard them, um, or or at least nobody, you know, no Israelis would have heard them because long, long before um, Palestinian protesters would reach um, a checkpoint or any place where the soldiers were stationed, you know, the the tear gas would start flying and um and 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 you know rubber bullets and and other kinds of Israeli counterinsurgency weapons. So um you know the whole point of protest seemed quite different depending on where one was. Um, and for me it was really interesting because both of these kinds of protests are, you know, are very brave. They can be very moving. Seen from the other location, they can also seen, seem a little bit like each one can kind of undercut, if you will, the eloquence and power of the other. You know, why aren't these people using fabulous protest chants? Well, because nobody will hear them, and because they're you know they're they're engaged in this really physical struggle. And on the other hand, you know, why aren't people in direct confrontation with these Israeli um, police officers and military you know officials that are stationed on the sidelines of these protests inside Israel? Well, you know, that would open up many more complications for Palestinian citizens of Israel. So I'm looking at these two different modes of expression, which are each so eloquent and powerful, and yet which um, are so different from each other. Um, What does that say about Palestinian collectivity? I will say also, though, that to the extent that there were protest chants on both sides of the green line, they were similar. Um, So there was a real convergence of a message and of a political culture that one could see. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Amal. And, you know, we'll talk about methodology a little bit more, but I'm very curious about how you place yourself in this collectivity and how you navigated those, you know, different kinds of protests uh, or maybe limitations to movement and so on.
0: So, you know, this is where my privilege uh, comes in big time. I'm a U.S. citizen. Um, During the course of this research, I was able to get Israeli citizenship because my father is a citizen of Israel. um, And I got it a little bit late in life for a variety of reasons. Um, I undertake this research with a deep and enduring sense of what it means to do this work and how lucky I am to be able to do this work. Um, And also of the importance, frankly, uh, of my sense of the importance of working across the green line as someone who's able to do so. Um, My partner is from the West Bank, from a refugee camp um, in Bethlehem, and I have many very close, you know, family and friend ties at this point there. Um, It's where we tend to be based as a parent. um, You know, fieldwork is very different as a parent. You uh, have, you know, more people to think about. Uh, And so for a variety of reasons, you know, we would be primarily located in Bethlehem as, as, as I was doing this field work, so that I could, you know, so that we could take care of our, our child and then our children. Um, so this meant that really every time I was crossing the green line to go into Israel, I was leaving behind people who I loved deeply who could not come with me. And also people who, you know, very clearly have, you know, a more immediate stake in what goes on under Israeli sovereignty than I do because I live in this country in the United States. You know what I mean? I have a full-time job, um, you know, at Tufts university. Um, whereas, you know, the people that I was leaving behind are living literally in the shadow of, you know, the separation wall around Ida refugee camp, you know? So I took very, very seriously the fact that, you know, my field work inside Israel, um, is premised on a, a privilege that I have. Um, it made it very important for me to make every trip worthwhile, Um, You know, I also, of course, deeply cherish visiting my family in the Galilee. Uh, It's both fun and politically meaningful and personally meaningful. Um, So there was a lot to juggle in this fieldwork and a lot of commitments to manage. um, And all I can say is that, um, you know, I thought about I thought about my location in the field all the time, you know, and I and I always will, you know, my location as a Palestinian and as a scholar and as a friend and family member to people on both sides of the green line. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. And in the book, I think it really comes across that, you know, you thought about that quite a bit and you're very honest about it. So um, I really, really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, we'll go back to sort of questions of methodology in a bit, but I want to ask you about one of the chapters that really stayed with me, the one about the commemoration practices around Nakba. So you show us the importance of embodied repetition in commemoration, but in your words, repetition is never just repetition. What then is at stake in repet- repetition in framing political collectivity?
0: Yeah, thank you. So I think I got that idea about repetition never being just repetition from all the musicians out there. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think that people can sometimes feel that these Nakba Day commemorations or other kinds of commemorations get to be formulaic. They happen every year. Indeed, some of the signs are brought out every year. Um, They are repetitious. But in that repetition comes innovation, comes the possibility for new voices to emerge. Um, you know, for example, just to take a simple point, um, the Nakba, Nakba, of course, refers to um, the Israeli dis, you know, uh, act of dispossessing Palestinians in 1948, the great catastrophe of Palestinian um, history of the last hundred years, this dispossession that destroyed so many villages, destroyed Palestinian urban life to such a great extent, um, took people's wealth away from them, made, you know, 750,000 Palestinians refugees and um, it used to be that Palestinians would commemorate the Nakba each May, um, but it also came to be very clear to Palestinians that they weren't just commemorating something that was past. They were actually commemorating an ongoing catastrophe. They were marking an ongoing catastrophe. And so Palestinians came to speak of a Nakba al Mustamirra, the ongoing Nakba, right? And the act of gathering each year brings people together in new places, new places of Palestinian dispossession. Each year they gather in these places and they think about the specificities of that history of ongoing dispossession. They learn about neighboring towns and villages and, and refugee camps in some cases, to think about how the Nakba takes place and is ongoing in those locations. Um, and they are Political philosophy, thus, also can kind of develop from the idea of commemorating a past catastrophe to thinking about the catastrophe as ongoing. Um, being in new places It's also the kind of a thing where, you know, they're kind of exercising a muscle of collectivity each year, and that takes courage, patience you know, planning, you know, among many other logistical, um, you know, and, um, political sort of muscles. Right. So that repetition is a way of building each year towards the next year and each gathering towards the next gathering. And, you know, there is of course, a continuity between commemoration and protest. And so these commemorations also make possible, not only the next commemoration, but in many ways, they also make possible the next protest. So, um, yeah, as we look ahead to this year's Nakba Day commemorations, um, I always hold those ideas in mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, and. Um... Yeah, I think it's very important to underline that, you know, even though we used the word commemoration, it signals something ongoing, right, and new avenues of political expression. So I really appreciated that answer.
0: I think, um just to interject, I mean, I think it's really interesting to think about the ongoing Nakba in terms of, you know, settler colonialism studies concept of um you know, settler colonialism being a structure and not an event, building on Patrick Wolfe's ideas, right? I mean, this is really the Palestinian concept of an ongoing Nakba. This is not just a one-time thing, but this is an ongoing structure of dispossession. So there's a real convergence there um, between, you know, one of these central ideas in settler colonialism studies and Palestinian experiences of dispossession that I've found so interesting to think with over these years. And also that I've really taken back to my own experiences uh, again here in Boston, where each um, November we gather for the national day of mourning um, to think about the ongoing dispossession of um, native American peoples in this in this country, so um, yeah, I think it's it's a really good way of again those gatherings helping us to do the political thinking that makes these connections across, you know, geographies, both you know, sort of tight geographies, uh, tight you know, within you know, Palestinian geographies and also global geographies of settler colonialism.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and you know, just um, because of. How you mentioned that these struggles are interconnected. I'm curious about how you think about indigeneity, um, both you know in and beyond Palestine. Like, is this a lens that's important for you to make these connections, either in the
0: book or in your broader work? This is a broad and lively conversation um in Palestine studies, as you can imagine. Um, you know, there are some ways in which people use the concept of indigeneity in ways that limit Palestinian claims and and sort of Advance Palestinian fragmentation if they think, for example, only of certain Palestinian groups as being indigenous because of a particular relationship to the land or to um, mobility, um, you know, thinking about Bedouin lifeways, for example. Um, for me, a Palestinian claim of indigeneity has to do with a Palestinian structural relationship to settler colonialism. Um, and it also, thinking through the richness of um, critical Indigenous studies work, helps me to open up new ways of thinking beyond the nation state as a solution or as a mode of liberation, um, thinking about other ways of being a collective and other ways of having a relationship to land. So for me, um, you know, critical Indigenous studies um, and thinking through Indigeneity has a great deal of possibility, and it's something that I really want to continue thinking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, we'll talk about this a little more, but I again want to ask about another chapter that stayed with me, which is the one centering on prisons. So you tell us that kin making becomes care rooted in incarceration. Can you speak more about what the relationship between care can and imprisonment do for you, especially as you think about this issue of uh, political collectivity, um, but also beyond.
0: Yeah, this was one of the chapters that I maybe didn't know that I was going to write from the beginning of this project. And even the section of this chapter that focuses on kin and caring is one that I also would not have anticipated, but it's one that really stays with me, um, Because people struggle so much to make connections with prisoners and prisoners struggle so much to make connections with each other and with people outside. Of course, incarceration as a global technology of confinement, isolation and violence hinges on isolation, hinges on severing kin and friendship and social ties. And prisoners are working to reestablish those kinds of ties um we know that structures of kin are not always liberatory in the Palestinian context or other ways, right? We know that they can entrench patriarchy and other forms of violence. Um and of course, you know that is true for Palestinians as as others, right? So what are the forms of kin making that I'm interested in here? Um you know, Israel of course you know, allows prison as a technology to sort of limit Palestinian kin relations, uh, to the most thin relations possible, you know, and sometimes even denies, you know, um, denies those kinds of kin relations in establishing, for example, who can visit. Right. Um, but Palestinian, uh, prisoners and those around them, um, You know, actually, it's a site of making connection across the green line. Um, Most most of the parts of my book are looking at a political practice that happens on two sides of the green line, not quite as comparison, but as sort of seeing them as relations, seeing how each of them challenges the green line or challenges the fragmentation of Palestinian collectivity. But in prison, we see Palestinian citizens of Israel and Palestinians from the West Bank actually living together so we see really close ties being developed among those prisoners. One of the things that I wrote about that I found really moving was um, a, a very long-serving political prisoner uh, who happens to be my brother-in-law uh, when he was released from prison after you know dozens of years in prison um, and finally was able to, you know, have a family named one of his children after the longest serving Palestinian political prisoner who um, was a Palestinian citizen of Israel, who's just been released this year, actually. Um, Usually, Palestinians often name their children after their fathers. um, They use, you know, naming practices to sort of re-entrench kinship in in a bloodline sense, right? But here was somebody honoring a friend, Honoring somebody from, you know, a Palestinian citizen of Israel as a, and he is from the West Bank. And um, honoring somebody who maybe won't be, you know, wasn't sure when that person was going to be able to make his own kin relations as a free person, right? Um, So it was really, really um, beautiful and powerful to see that naming practice happen. Um, In another case, uh, a Palestinian woman who is an artist and also a relative of mine um, who's a citizen of Israel would use her privilege as a citizen of Israel to make visits to prisoners, to be with them um, in some of the most difficult moments in like a hunger strike, for example, when some of their actual kin cannot be there. Um, those kinds of relationships are, of course, very powerful and create a kind of caring you know, that means a lot to Palestinians and means a lot to the individual individuals involved. So what I'm interested in is these kinds of kin making that build on Palestinian modalities of kin, um, but also extend beyond them.
1: Mm. Yeah, that. You know, that that sounds very important and it sounds a bit, you know, at first glance, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but hence I can see, you know, that being the chapter you didn't think maybe initially that you'd be writing. And I'm curious, so so far, you know, you mentioned um, maybe a reiterative relationship between commemoration and protest, for example, how they make each other possible. And I wonder if these, like where these kinds of kin-making or care stand in relation to those, right? Are they, like, how do they make possible, for example, protests or commemoration or other forms of
0: political expression in different ways? Well, for me, the thread of kin and caring uh, runs through the book such that it kind of, you know, crescendos throughout the book. Um, in particular, um Not so much in the chapters on commemoration and protest, but in a chapter on grief on Facebook, um, where this sense of a Palestinian, what does it mean to mourn as a Palestinian? It means to engage in these rituals that can seem, again, maybe... um, uh, formulaic, But that are a way of marking relation and creating relation among people of standing and respect and honoring those lost. Um, and so that comes through in these practices of, of grieving and then also in these practices in and around prison. Um, I think kin and kin making uh, beyond sort of the lines of, you know, the patriarchal family is something that I'm really looking forward to exploring more. Um, But I think also the the surprisingness of uh, the space of confinement as a space of relation makes sense because Israel is trying to use a variety of ways to suppress Palestinian expression and collectivity. So Palestinians who live with measures of freedom actually experience in some ways um, Israeli um, forms of oppression in ways that tie them up a bit more. You know, so far we've
1: spoken on settler colonialism, incarceration and of course in doing so you know, our conversation couldn't help but reflect back on the United States, right? And within the text of the book too you're very forthright about the US being a third location in your words. Um, but you're also cautious about exceptionalizing the US as the site of knowledge production. And I'm curious about how these sensibilities sit with each other, how you negotiate them or navigate them.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting for me to keep thinking about this issue. My first book was really about <clears throat> Palestinian journalists and how they work with U.S. journalists to produce the u- the news narratives that um, we in the United States rely upon. Um, Palestinian journalists have this backgrounded role. Um, without them, U.S. journalists wouldn't be able to do their work, but they don't get to, Palestinian journalists who are fixers and producers don't get to determine the narratives that um, you know, people in the United States read each day. Um, so that was really about you know this relationship between Palestinians and a U.S. public that is so attenuated, right? In the second book, I really wanted to think about a Palestinian conversation, you know, and the possibility for Palestinian expression and exchange among different Palestinian groups. It was important for me to cordon off that space and say, like, this is important too. It's not just about how Palestinians represent themselves to Americans or Europeans or others. It's important how Palestinians speak to each other. It's important to maintain space for a Palestinian conversation. Um, Of course, you know, the United States plays a role, in in a great number of ways, Um, you know, as a primary supporter of Israel, as, um, you know, sort of a backer of this humanitarian industry that um, shapes Palestinian lives in so many ways. And of course, because of the dominance of American anthropology as one of my primary audiences. Um, And also because I live here and I'm a Palestinian American. Um, So I think there's a tension, an interesting one for me to keep puzzling over about sort of the role of the United States in this book. The other thing, of course, is that in some ways, while I'm thinking about Palestinian fragmentation through settler colonialism, I'm also thinking about um, how settler colonialism in the United States has fragmented people, created categories, um, made it more difficult for certain kinds of solidarities to emerge. Um, So there's that element as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I'm sure um, our listeners who might be thinking about similar questions will appreciate um, what you've shared with us as well. And I've also promised that we would talk about methodology. So now is the time I deliver on that. Um, you know, in the book, you call yourself and your collaborators as bricolors, which was very intriguing to me. So what does this term mean in the context of Palestine? And why is it important to think and work through bricolage, at least for you or for this book?
0: I think it's a number of things. Thank you for picking up on that. Um <laughs> So, you know, there are so many people who write on Palestine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As an ethnographer, I feel myself, at least at this stage of my career, to primarily be bound to writing with what I see on the ground. Mm. You know, to take very seriously what people are saying and doing and to make my arguments from what I see there. So, you know, that's a very kind of a material process of, you know, what did somebody say at a protest? Where did people move? Where did they stand? You know, what is literally the geography of the space of gathering? Um, So As an ethnographer, I have felt this uh, thus far really in my life as an anthropologist to be wanting to work with that material, to be kind of a a collage artist, um, building my own argument, but but again, really honoring the voices on the ground for a variety of reasons. Again, also perhaps because they are the people who have the greatest stake in what what is going on um, under Israeli sovereignty today. Um, So that's one element of the Bricolore. The other thing I think is that Palestinian activists are also themselves kind of Bricolores because they are working with this... Political heritage that comes down to them, right? They they're working with poetry written decades ago, um, and slogans and iconography and holidays and calendars. They're working with all this material and they are building towards a future with that material. Um, so it's really interesting to see how that is a creative process working with sort of what's already out there. Of course, innovating on top of it and building new things around it. But really, um, you know, if you want to get people to join a protest or a commemoration, in some ways it has to be familiar to, to many people for them to join, right? So that work of a brick of lore is something that I'm doing as an ethnographer and something the activists are doing. Um, and for me, it's also as somebody who cares deeply about place and geography, thinking about the materiality of space and place is also, you know... You know, thinking about ethnography as something we do with our bodies and with our hands, um, as well as with our minds, has always been very, very important. You know, what does it mean to stand on a pile of rubble as you're shooting a scene? You know, what does it mean to travel over, you know, uh, one highway and then uh, a dirt road to get to um, where you're going, for example? So all of that, the materiality of the process of meaning making is really, really important for me. And that concept of the bricolore helps me, you know, pick up on that. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And speaking about materiality, my next question is about the materiality of photographs, um, so to speak. So part of the book centers on a photography exchange you organized with photographers along different sides of the green line. Uh, so could you tell us more about that? And specifically, how does a focus on the visual sit within your methodology?
0: So this was a really fun chapter that I, you know, this was a really fun part of my research. I was really happy to be able to do this. Um, what I did was to set up a photography exchange between Palestinians in Ida refugee camp under Israeli military occupation and under, um, and in Jaffa. Um, under Israel's civil rule. Um, and these two places in some ways are very, very different from each other. And why did I choose places that were so you know, different from each other on the surface? Well, I mean, in some ways, for logistical reasons, I had to have a place where I could go back and forth quite easily. And also, um, you know, ch- working with two organizations that I felt would be good partners in this project. Um, but also because I, you know, there's no way to find sort of two parallel places. There are no two equivalent places that you can look at, right? Instead, what I wanted to think about is a logic of juxtaposition juxtaposing places, thinking about places in relation um, that are always kind of tag teaming with each other and with other places um, to create this space, Larger Palestinian geography. So Palestinian photographers and you know young people who are not professional photographers but just interested in photography were taking pl- pictures um, of their you know their communities and sharing them with each other. And the idea was to sort of create a conversation through fo- photographs. Um, it turned out that I was doing this field work during 2014 uh, again during Israel's one of Israel's larger and longer um, and more violent wars on Gaza um, that made the research more challenging um, it made it more difficult I had thought at one point that maybe these groups of people would be able to gather you know more than once or twice to meet face to face but that really you know it, that people met face to face twice only Um Uh, And that really highlighted for me both the possibilities and the limits of photography. So why did I think photography was a useful mode of doing this kind of research? Well, you know... It's easy to share a photograph. And that was certainly, you know, even that was even truer in 2014, right? Where now maybe people share videos quite a bit. But in 2014, it was especially easy to share a video, a little less easy to share a video. I'm sorry, it was especially easy to share a photograph and a little less easy to share a video. Um, But I also thought that photography would let us think about the everyday in a particular way, as opposed to thinking that we need to talk about, you know, um, only days of commemoration or only military violence or only, you know, the history of the Nakba and how it's impacted, you know, people in Jaffa or people in Aida refugee camp. No, photography lets us think about, you know, what you see outside your window, which is also shaped by, you know, Israeli rule in many cases, as well as many, many other things, right, shaped by Palestinian decisions about how to live their lives and cultivate their own spaces. Um, So photography was this way of getting at the politics of the everyday and how people enjoy, inhabit um, space. And the cool thing for me about it was that, um, you know, in doing this work, it didn't happen, you know, the, the work, the collaboration didn't happen as I expected. And not just because of that, um, um, the work the war on Gaza. Um, You know, I was the only person who was regularly moving across the green line between Jaffa and Ida refugee camp. And more than once people said to me, look, Amal, you're seeing these great connections between what we're doing, between gentrification in in Jaffa and a, a big neoliberal hotel in Bethlehem. We can't see that because we don't get to do the movement, right? And also because we are actually only sharing photographs, you know, we're not, we're not able to get outside of the frame of a single photograph necessarily, right? Or a group of photographs to know what happened just before, or just after, or just off frame. So it was a really interesting experiment for me to learn about really the limits of this kind of an exchange um, among groups of people that were interested in engaging with each other um, and that did have a meaningful, you know, conversation and exchange and you know, kind of um ways of connecting about the similarities and differences of their challenges, but that, um, you know, the connection was, was harder than I had anticipated it would be. And that was very enlightening for me. It was, you know, it was, it was important for me to grasp that.
1: Mm, Yeah, I can imagine. And I guess that's another form of collage, right? That you didn't intend to do at the beginning.
0: And we actually made uh, two kinds of collages. One was that in addition to having a an exhibition where we put images from each location sort of next to each other in sequence, we also made big poster boards of actual collages around particular themes, including mm-hmm. like children and play. And um, I think we might have had one on cats, although I'm not sure we ended up with a whole one on cats. We certainly could have had one on cats. Uh, <laughs> (laughs) Um, and on, you know, we could have had one on like potted plants, but we just found these themes that sort of were about Palestinian everyday spaces, um, across these spaces. And the other kind of a collage we had, which was really fun is that we took photographs of graffiti and murals in the two locations, and then, um, put them onto a magnetic background. And so we had this magnetic photography, magnetic collage of photographs of graffiti, Uh, you know, like the magnetic poetry that, you know, you can find these various kits on. So we were able to sort of mishmash um, graffiti and murals from Ida Refugee Camp And from Jaffa. And that was really wild. And again, for me, a little bit of a liberatory practice because it allowed people to open up topics and ideas that they maybe weren't able to, you know, scrawl on the walls themselves, but that could be done if you put these two places in relation. So, yeah, collage is a really creative process, you know, that lets you think in new ways about liberation, about being together um, and about creativity itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it sounds like a very fascinating process, yet also one that's challenging, but maybe worth the challenges in some ways.
0: And also fun. Uh huh.
1: Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> fun and play, you know, are really necessary on these paths towards liberation, I very firmly believe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to speak about the passages between chapters. So through them, you show us how mobility and immobility feel, right? Beyond just, you know, um, being argumentative about it, I guess. Um, so, yeah, could you tell us about how you used passages as a genre to evoke feeling? Or, um, yeah, what kind of work did you intend these passages to do or hope that they would do?
0: I love the passages. Um, <laughs> um, the passages do a number of things. Um, as a whole, throughout the book, they are structured from the one that happens at this point um, 18 years ago, I believe, um, from now, and another that happened right towards the end of, right before I, you know, finished this book. So they have that structure of, you know, spanning. My time as an anthropologist in Palestine, um, they also sometimes tell a story about getting to the location of the next chapter. And I think that's very important because, again... Uh, You know, to really understand the everyday politics of any place, I think you have to pay attention to what happens before and after an event and getting there is absolutely part of the story. You know, I think um, telling there's some other great stories about sort of getting to the field or getting to a particular location for field work for the day. And I think we you know, that that can be very illuminating to work with those moments in those times. Um, The other thing I think is that, you know, when we're being in motion, Uh, Wherever we are, you know, if we're on the street, we are in relationship to the state, whether the state is smooth or bumpy, you know, whether we're worried about running into a police officer or an Israeli soldier or a checkpoint, um, you know, so it's really a way of people just sort of taking their temperature of, you know, am I safe right now? It's also a moment of great pleasure, you know, oftentimes, you know, going fast, enjoying the seasons, enjoying, you know, your own memories of space and moving through time, enjoying the collectivity of whether you're with three other people in a car or with, you know, in my case, the first um, passage is about, you know, being with 50 other Kids, mostly kids on a bus, you know, and that's really fun. You know, <laughs> that's a really specific collectivity. Right. Um, so thinking about collectivities that are made in motion, I think, is a great process. Again, for if, if what I'm trying to do in this book is to think about how Palestinians can make and remake collectivities on different scales, those little collectivities are important, too. Right. Um, and also um, mobility is a way in which Palestinians challenge Israeli um, forms of closure. You know, we often think, you know, there are these iconic maps of Israeli closure. Um, you know, uh, you know the United Nations makes these maps of the West Bank and of Gaza, and they are incredible. they you know, they, they document every roadblock and every wall and every uh, watchtower and every concrete block in some cases, right? These are incredible maps. People tend to think about them as maps only affecting, you know, economic life. Um, and they tend to think about them as primarily affecting people in the West Bank. But what I'm trying to do is think about closure as a technology that um, impacts not only you know economic and educational life and and social life, but also political expression, right, and that affects not only Palestinians in the occupied territories, but um, all the Palestinians who are effectively you know, limited in, in their ability to see and meet with each other through those kinds of maps. So looking at these individual journeys, including you know, some that challenge those rules of closure, um, was um, an important part of the process for me. It's also a way of, again, maybe, maybe the part in the book where I can most clearly own up to my own privilege as a person with all those mobility privileges as a, an Israeli citizen and a U.S. citizen
1: right um yeah but i think what you intended to do really comes across to the reader so i really enjoyed reading those parts personally <laughs> um so as we close my last question is what is next for you what are some new projects or questions in which you're interested currently
0: well i do hope that this book will invite more research um, not just from me, but hopefully from others, about the way in which fragmentation, um, you know, shapes Palestinian politics. I hope also that thinking about um, expression as something that's embodied and, and in, in placed, um will help people think about modes of making collectivity that are not just about Palestinians, but could be about Palestinians and, and Jewish Israelis, could be about, you know, people well beyond, um, you know, Um, Palestine-Israel, right? Um, And I hope to do a little bit more work that spans the green line. Um, I think perhaps my next big field project will be about Ida Refugee Camp um, and the politics of displacement, long-term displacement, uh, living in a site that's heavily militarized by the Israeli military occupation um, and a site where Palestinians are struggling for, in some cases, for a politics that is independent not only of Israeli occupation, but also of the Palestinian Authority and of the humanitarian structures of the United United Nations. Um, In doing this project, which I really conceived of really a long time ago now, like, you know, I've been thinking about doing this for 10 years also, um, and it's exciting to come back to it after these years. I'm still in interested in those themes, which maybe were the ones that I thought of 10 years ago, but I'm also really interested in thinking more about kinship and friendship and relationality. Um, again, as a person who's now been doing um, field work and spending time there for almost 20 years, um, seeing relationships that span those decades is, is really meaningful to me. And I want to be able to think about, you know, kin and connection and love in that context. As well as, I hope, creativity in play. Because again, I think that that has to be a part <laughs> of these, these projects.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to that work. Uh, and thank you very much, Jamal, for joining us today and for your insights. Thank you so much, Alize. Really great to be in conversation. This is your host, Alize Rujan. This discussion of Crossing a Line, Laws, Violence, and Roadblocks to Palestinian Political Expression, published by Stanford University Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.